podcasting from Madison, Wisconsin, the home of Bucky Badger and the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy. This is the Apothecary Club, a monthly podcast about emerging trends and their impact on pharmaceutical science and drug development. This podcast is a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists. And now, here's your host, author and educator, Dr. Eric Burns. Welcome back. We are now going to continue our conversation with Dr. and Professor George Zagrafi. For those new to this specific area of research, can you share the basics of what a scientist in big pharma or any level of pharma should know about amorphous solids? Like, What are those rules of thumb that you mentioned that, that are something that you should really be paying attention to if you're a scientist? Well, in a, in a simplistic way, you might say, one should think of the fact that the amorphous state is simply a state of a solid that is a solid in a macroscopic way. It looks like a solid, it feels like a solid. But if you could zero in on the molecular level, you would see that the material is no, no longer crystalline. It's not highly ordered. It's really a liquid. So it has the properties of a liquid, but the liquid is so viscous that it's become solidified. So that's simply what an amorphous material is. Then the question becomes, how do you prepare such a material? Because you're now below the melting point of the liquid, of the mm-hmm. solid. So you're in a state where it should crystallize. And indeed, if allowed enough time, it will crystallize. So the goal then becomes, what are the properties of the amorphous state of the liquid that prevents it from crystallizing or enhances its ability to crystallize? And how can we characterize features of a material that will allow us to either prevent it or enhance it. And it turns out that there are a few critical points in the uh, lifetime of a material, particularly at different temperatures. There's the melting temperature of the crystal, Mm -hmm. and there's something called the glass transition temperature, which is where the amorphous material, the liquid, suddenly has certain major changes that also occur. And uh, we have to understand that. So there are critical parameters that we have to follow. Mm-hmm. Also, in terms of the properties of molecules, the reason crystals are so stable, one of the reasons is that they are rigid. The molecules don't move very much. They don't have rotational and translational motions to any high degree. But once they become amorphous or liquids, they become very free to move around. And when they're free to move around, they're free to get in trouble mm-hmm. and to become unstable and, and therefore a very important part of studying the amorphous state is to understand how rapidly these molecules move. So we, we carry out studies in what we call molecular mobility. So understanding the temperature ranges where properties uh, exist and understanding the molecular motions of the molecules helps us to begin to characterize them and to understand how we can work with them. We've discussed, you know, I think in general what amorphous dispersions roles are in drug development. Can you speak specifically as to how they're being utilized today when looking through discovery and development? Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 intrinsically, if you have material that's in the amorphous state, when it comes in contact with a solvent like water, it will be loosened up, as I said, with its molecular mobility so that it will crystallize. Mm-hmm. So, using an amorphous system, 
Initially, it will dissolve because it's not a crystal and it doesn't have these forces that hold the crystal together, so it dissolves. That's wonderful. We call that supersaturation. That's the goal, to get a high level of supersaturation which will enhance bioavailability. But at the same time, by creating that supersaturation, you enhance the ability of the material to crystallize. Mm -hmm. So you gain nothing by just taking an amorphous material and trying to dissolve it and get a therapeutic effect. You need something to prevent that crystallization. And you need a prevention of crystallization at two stages. While it's still a solid, and once it re it's added to the water. Okay. So those are the challenges mm -hmm. that we face. So what has happened is we increasingly started to understand how if you add a second material, particularly a polymeric material, you not only stabilize the solid and prevent it from crystallizing over long periods of storage at various temperatures and relative humidities, but once it hits the dissolution medium, the stomach or whatever, there still remains a protective effect, if I may use that term, mm -hmm. such that the polymer prevents the material from crystallizing even after it's dissolved. This is a wonderful advantage. So you can use, for instance, and, and amorphous dispersions can be produced fairly easily by solution methods or melting, vaporization. There are many techniques that can be used. So the advantage of the amorphous dispersion is First of all, at the early stages, when you have very little material, but you know they're poorly soluble, you can prepare amorphous dispersions during uh, toxicology safety studies, preliminary bioavailability studies in animals. You, mm -hmm. And then you can move on and figure out what you want to do, but there are other ways to maintain high solubility. So the amorphous dispersion is a wonderful technique for short-range evaluation of drug products, which will speed up the drug development process. Mm -hmm. But then as you move along into you know, different phases of drug development, phase one, phase two, mm -hmm. and so on, if you can produce a system where you can ensure stabilization over a period that's required for that phase, it might be months, it might be years, mm -hmm. then you have a, a great advantage using this technique. With the understanding there's always a risk, and you have to minimize that risk. So when talking about the advantages of disadvantages of amorphous compounds, can you talk about what those might be when compared to other solid forms? Yeah. When you make an amorphous material, it is, it is metastable. It's, it's mm -hmm. It can always crystallize. And the environment you put it into can either promote that crystallization or not. Okay, so that's its big disadvantage. The, the risk associated with it. Back to risk assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, if you take a salt, for instance, you can get very high solubility with many salt forms, which is an alternative approach, and it's used to enhance dissolution. However, you have the same risk, because if you put the salt into an environment where the free acid or free base form can exist, you've converted it from the salt to the free form, you can also create crystallization and instability. So in using a salt, you have to understand what parameters are open to you to keep it in the most stable form. Mm -hmm. So there, it's a completely analogous to the amorphous state. And I think people more and more realize that it's just, there's just as much risk as uh, uh, with using salts as there might be with the amorphous state. It's that rule of thumb yeah, that you're talking yeah, you about. To, yeah. yeah, and in the case of uh, amorphous state, it's what temperature range, what relative humidity, 
are you working in? And if you know the characteristics of the amorphous material and the amorphous dispersion, you can play within that range and, and have rules of thumb that can predict years of stability. We introduced the idea, the rough idea, with some scientific basis, that if you can keep an amorphous material 50 degrees below its glass transition temperature, you can maintain its stability for a number of years because the molecular motions that would lead to crystallization, for instance, are operating on a time scale of years because you've, you've increased the viscosity and you've mm -hmm. made... So the same thing with salts. You look, what's the pKa of the salt? If you know the ionization constant of the salt, you can get some idea of whether and the solubility of the salt, you can get some idea of where to work. Uh, co-crystals are a hot area now uh, of study where you co-crystallize uh, a drug with a, what's often called a co-former or a former. You bring them together, and in many cases, you can enhance the solubility of the crystal. So now, the great advantage is you have a crystal. Mm -hmm. okay. But we know that exposing co-crystals to relative humidity separates the mm -hmm. two materials, and you can end up with a material that crystallizes and is of no use pharmaceutically. So there's a risk assessment. Everything has a risk associated mm -hmm. with it. Lipid drug delivery. By the way, this is the basis of my short course on amorphous dispersions with UW that, that we're offering in May. With the lipid drug delivery, where you enhance the solubility of the drug in a lipid fat, and that way when it hits the body, it is released at a higher level and enhances dissolution. But it's supersaturated relative to the crystal, and the potential for possibly crystallizing out is also great. So you have to understand the basic science. Mm -hmm. That would be my, uh, my, you know, my, kind of my primary concern. There are other options, and some are more difficult to uh, process. Uh, co-crystals aren't necessarily... Uh, easily made at large scale. Yeah, it sounds like there's some processing challenges yeah. that happens yeah. in And with lipids, stage. you have, uh, lipids are int intrinsically unstable to oxidation, so if you use lipids as a drug delivery device, some cases may produce problems. So everything has its risks, mm -hmm. and I guess that's the message. Uh, I think the amorphous state, if it's understood, should have no more risk than anything else if you understand what you're doing. So when talking about the technology involved in amorphous solids and just farm sci in general, can you put your futuristic hat on and, and just maybe tell us where you see the science going and how it's going to impact this area specifically? Yeah. Amorphous dispersions are a mixture of amorphous material, API, mm -hmm. and, and typically a polymer. And so there... The first thing is, if you're, go if you're going to um, be successful in the use of this material and have the polymer helpful in inhibiting instability, both in the solid state as well as in the dissolution media, an important question is, are these two materials miscible? Mm -hmm. These are amorphous states, as I said earlier, are really liquids. And two materials in the liquid state, when mixed, like ethanol and water, can be either miscible, or if you added water and hydrocarbon, they'll separate into two phases. So the first concern is, will these things mix? And if they do mix, basically, uh, what proportion, is there a limit to how a proportion of drug that you can put into this product? We call that drug loading. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a big issue right now, and that will be discussed at this conference, I know. You know, And we have shown that as little as 5% of a polymer in an amorphous material, in some cases, inhibits crystallization for a period of, say, six months. Well, that's not enough in many cases, mm-hmm. so, so we have to use more polymer. We've shown that 30% of a polymer with a drug like indomethacin can reduce instability, crystallization, in the solid state over a period of two years. All right, so there we have some idea that composition is important. Can we get that composition of the polymer down to a level of 5% by doing something significantly Mm -hmm. interesting scientifically and therefore produce API products where the doses are quite high? Mm -hmm. That's a big disadvantage right now that uh, they typically use 50 to 70% polymer to be sure that they're not going to get instability. So that's a challenge. Now, in order to scientifically understand how a small material, amount of material can work, you have to know where is the drug in right. molecularly. Right. Is it at the surface? Is it dispersed equally? And uh, why is such a small amount of material so influential? And that kind of research is definitely needed, and some groups are working on that, and that will be discussed at this meeting. So that, that's a question. And then once the drug hits the uh, liquid medium, dissolution medium, how does the polymer, especially if it's at 5% or less, how does it stay around long enough to prevent crystallization? And that's another area of great interest, dissolution properties of dispersions that uh, w- will be discussed at a fundamental level at this conference. So when we talk about technology and the impacts technology is having on everything we do from a scientific background, it leads me to believe, generally, that the science is moving faster than policy and, and legislation and just the general outcomes of what this means. Can you talk about the current regulatory issues that are impacting this area? You mentioned earlier biosimilars. Um, I know our July conference also is is really focusing in on yeah. the use of biosimilars within research, specifically bioanalytics, obviously. It's amazing to me on, specifically with that topic, how behind regulatory is. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect from from your perspective? Well, from the perspective of small API and and, and the potential use of polymer dispersions, as well as perhaps co-crystals fits in with that also, there is a philosophical question which I have not kept up on totally in recent years, and I, I never was... Uh, very strongly involved with regulatory issues myself. But from my perspective, there's, I think there, in general, the Food and Drug Administration uh, and other regulatory bodies internationally are, of course, always concerned in keeping things as simple as possible and as general as possible. So that there are questions, for instance, if you have an amorphous dispersion, have you created a new form? Is the polymer just an excipient? Uh, and so you just treat this as a, a formulation of the drug in a, with polymer excipients, or is the entire entity a new form? Mm-hmm. And this gets into patentability and this, as well as regulation. And I think these questions, uh, the science is quite different than the response of the regulatory bodies. And this has been t- particularly uh, important with co-crystals. It's a co-crystal, which is a, a molecular entity. It's a two molecules that have formed a new form. Mm-hmm. 
Is that a new form or is the co-former just an excipient? Mm -hmm. And that has been of great concern to people who would hope to have proprietary exclusivity with a co-crystal. So, yeah, so that those are fundamental issues where the science bumps up against uh, perhaps uh, not reality in a sense or uh, questions that, that regulatory bodies would would raise about the exclusivity of what you've accomplished. And I think those are unresolved, particularly in the cold crystal field. So when speaking about the legal ownership or the proprietary aspect of this, what are those concerns that scientists need to be paying attention to? I mean, when, when talking about the derivation and, and the ownership aspects, and is, it, is this really new? Can you talk a little bit about that and how you address that during your time and how you would suggest researchers now address it? Well, uh, again, I'm, I, I'm not a lawyer. But, but the, you play the, one on TV, right? There, is, <laughs> the, there have been these questions of, if you have, we can start with crystals, mm -hmm. and, and the fact that crystals can exist in different thermodynamic states, meaning that they are distinctly different have distinctly mm -hmm. different thermodynamic properties. They are, now, one is metastable relative to the other. In other words, one can convert to the other. There's always a more stable form. But over the years, it's been developed that and accepted that two polymorphic forms are distinct states, and therefore, uh, in terms of, I imagine, in terms of regulatory patentability and things of that sort, they are distinctly different and can be patented individually. That was... Now, there's always been a school of thought that didn't like that idea, but that, I think, has prevailed over the years. Now we come with the amorphous material. And I, I often talked about the amorphous state over the years relative to the crystalline state, and therefore there is a parallelism between two polymorphic states and the amorphous state and a particular crystal. There is a parallelism that they are two different entities, and I think by and large people have been able to patent amorphous material. In my old age, as recently as the last few months, I've come to not use the word state as much as I, I did okay. before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's a metastable state, you might say, but so I'm not so sure that this, this is a distinct state. It's a liquid. But be, putting that aside, I think that's been the, the critical issue in, in discussing uh, the proprietary aspects and the regulatory aspects. Uh, are these materials really different? And now we're learning from our studies of the amorphous state, and I will discuss that a little bit at the uh, conference, from my perspective, that even a liquid can exist in different states, just like a crystal can exist mm -hmm. in different And we have something that we call polyamorphism. Now, we haven't gone there yet because we don't have enough examples, but fundamental studies of the amorphous state may very well lead to the fact that you and I can prepare an amorphous material that has very different states, and we can use different polymers that may encourage different states. Mm -hmm. So it can get very complicated, and I don't see how the regulatory bodies can keep up with this, but I would say the bottom line is if this state indeed produces a different therapeutic effect, a, a, a better effect, then I think we have to take a hard look at that it is a unique material. But it would have to be demonstrated that this is not just a, a gimmick. 
So what is the other word you're using besides state? Environment or just... Amorphous solid. Amorphous solid. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm still thinking about that. So, I, I think it's kind of nitpicking, but I, uh, I, I had some challenging discussions with some of my younger colleagues about this, and I think, uh, I think it, it needs a little thinking, but it's not earth-shaking. Uh, wait, look at me. <laughs> so wrapping up, when, when thinking about the current trends... Where do you see amorphous science going? What are the pitfalls to avoid? What are those rules of thumb that you would like to to put out there and espouse to to the young scientists or to the to the field in general? Well, I think that uh, the amorphous state, amorphous solids, have a future, a good, a, a bright future in the pharmaceutical industry. I, I have no doubt about that. I think our understanding of how to deal with it technologically, processing, has been greatly enhanced over the last 10 years or more. Uh, and I think this conference will point that out. I mean, the, the preponderance of talks are very fundamentally driven by the industrial applications. So I think we'll see the fruits of all our labors coming to pass. Uh, so I, I'm convinced that uh, it will progress. Once you start saying, well, how do we increase the load? So how can we get away with less material? What can we do to the formulation to allow that happen? That can only lead to better products, as far as I'm concerned. So I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it does. It, it's it's one of those things, though, that I think it's a loaded question. It, it's, yeah. it's an unfair question, to I be honest. I'll tell you the, one of the pitfalls. There is a tendency on the part of many in the pharmaceutical industry in formulation work to seek uh, what they call platforms, a sort of a, a, a template, a formulation that you can put into, with what you can put into an, a, an API, let's say, make a dispersion, and have that work every time. Mm -hmm. Now, platforms are great if, if they work all the time. And I would say that that could be a pitfall, that as more and more people want to use dispersions, they will limit, they'll they'll become more empirical, we'll, we'll head back toward a more empirical situation where we're just mixing and making, mm -hmm. which is an old pharmacy term. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would be a pitfall that I think once to always approach formulation with today's technology, today's analytical capability, with today's understanding of the physical chemistry and biology of these drugs, there's no reason to go back to empiricism and just take drug A and dump it into a standard formulation, uh, because I think most of the time you're going to come up short and then you have to go back to basics. So that would be the pitfall, that as we become more interested in these forms, we want to simplify and reduce the time that it ordinarily would take to understand our systems. And I think the kind of work that we did and others have done in developing, for one of another words, predictability or rules of thumb intelligent guessing, nothing else, I think would be the way to overcome those pitfalls. That would be my greatest concern. Well, it sounds like this area has a, has a lot of room, not just for maturity, but just expansion. Okay. You know, your research is, is really fundamental on that. 
I encourage everybody listening to check out the AAPS uh, short course in April, uh, from April 18th to the 20th. You can get more information on their website, but also uh, through their social media. Be sure to check out the May short course UW-Madison Division of Pharmacy Professional Development is putting on, four through six. That's going to be with George. But also, I would say the biggest one out of all this, really talking about those new directions and how George's research has led the way, is the June Research and Development Land O'Lakes Conference, June 6th through the 9th at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So from the apothecaryclubpodcast.com and from AAPS and the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, we from the bottom of our hearts want to thank George for coming in and, and being so involved with with the field. George, thanks. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the Apothecary Club with Dr. Eric Burns. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theapothecaryclub.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section on our website for previous podcasts and follow us on social media. This has been a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists. Join us next time for another edition of the Apothecary Club Podcast.